Good evening, everybody, and welcome back to The Haunted Collection with your host, writer, paranormal investigator, and haunted collector Kevin Kane, coming back for more scary stories. Thank you for tuning in again for another episode. This is my second episode of 2013, and we're getting close to the 100th episode, which we'll have later this year. I want to invite you to go to my website, myhaunteddolls.com. All of the books I've written out there, including the stories, original stories I've written, are out there. In the shop, you can buy your autographed copy today. My supernatural novels, my nonfiction books about my haunted items that I've collected, and all sorts of books out there. So be sure to check that out and get your autographed copy today. You can also find those on other online stores like Amazon, Books A Million, Barnes & Noble, and also their own Kindle, an e-book. And there are a couple of the books that are actually on Audible. So if you like to listen to your books, be sure to check those out. While you're on the website, you can follow the link on the link page to my YouTube channel, My Haunted Dolls, where you can see videos of my spirit box sessions with some of the haunted items in my collection and some past live shows that we've done talking about various subjects. So be sure to check those out as well. MyHauntedDolls.com Shop, shop, shop. And I do appreciate your support. And now let's get on to the first story. This first story takes place in a hospital. A lot of deaths occur in the hospitals, and that's why many of them are said to be haunted. And this next story is no different. In fact, this one also involves not just a hospital, but this is a hotel and a patient. And, as the title of the story says, The Night Nurse. In the days before the condition of a critically ill patient was monitored by a variety of electronic devices, it was common to have a patient watched by a nurse 24 hours a day. Usually the nurses worked in shifts, a day nurse and a night nurse. Nurse McKenzie was such a nurse. Shortly after she received her training at a hospital in Edinburgh, Scotland, she was sent to a hotel called the White Dove in Edinburgh. One of the guests at the hotel, a woman named Venning, had become very sick. The owner of the hotel knew nothing about the sick woman except her name, and the fact that at one time she had been an actress. 
He noticed that she had looked ill on her arrival the previous week. Two days after her arrival, she complained of feeling as though she had a high fever. A doctor was sent for, and he, he diagnosed Miss Venning as suffering from a serious disease that was rare in England. Though fairly common in warmer countries like India, the woman soon lapsed into unconsciousness, and two nurses were sent for by the doctor to watch the patient day and night. Nurse McKenzie's hours were from 9 p.m. until 9 a.m. The hospital was an old or the hotel was an old one, at one time even used as a hospital, but it had been newly renovated and equipped with all the conveniences available at the time, like electric lights. The room in which the sick woman lay was rather cheerfully decorated, but it somehow filled Nurse McKenzie with a feeling of depression and dread. She felt that there was something hideous and repulsive in the room. It was not the patient Miss Venning, who, despite her illness, was a very good-looking woman. She was also far too ill and too heavily drugged to say anything. She groaned and turned once in a while, but that was about it. The first night Nurse McKenzie spent at Miss Venning's bedside was uneventful. The patient even showed some signs of improvement. The second night was different. A storm had broken outside. The wind was raging and rain was pelting the window of the room. Nurse McKenzie had been on the job for about two hours when she looked up from the book she was reading and saw, sitting in a chair beside the head of the bed, a child, a tiny girl. Nurse McKenzie could not imagine how this child had gotten there. I could only suppose that the shrieking of the wind down the wide chimney had deadened the sound of the door and her footsteps, she thought. Nurse McKenzie was angry that the child had not knocked before entering the sick room. She got up from her chair and was about to order the girl out of the room when the girl lifted a hand and motioned her back. I obeyed because I could not help myself, said the nurse. The child was dressed in a rather peculiar fashion. She had a wide-brimmed hat, which completely obscured her features. To the Scottish nurse, there was something about the style of the dress that suggested foreign nationality, possibly the Orient. Nurse McKenzie heard her patient sigh, and she looked over toward the sick woman. 
She was tossing to and fro on the blankets and breathing in the most agonized manner, as if in delirium or caught in a particularly dreadful nightmare. The nurse was alarmed by this, and she tried frantically to overcome the spell that she seemed to be under, but without success. She sank back into her chair and closed her eyes. When she opened them again, the child was gone. A tremendous feeling of relief surged through me, and jumping out of my seat, I hastened to the bedside, she said. My patient was worse. The fever had increased, and she was delirious. After a few hours, however, the sick woman seemed to improve and drifted into a peaceful sleep. By morning, she gave every appearance of having recovered from her relapse. When Nurse Mackenzie told the doctor about the child's visit, he became very angry. Whatever happens, nurse, the doctor said, take care that no one enters the room tonight. The patient's condition is far too critical for her to see anyone, even her own daughter. You must keep the door locked. Armed with those orders, Nurse Mackenzie carefully locked the door the following evening after she went on duty. She sat down by the fire. The storm had ended, but there had been a heavy fall of snow and the weather had turned bitterly cold. The sick woman was sleeping peacefully, and Nurse Mackenzie herself dozed off. At about quarter to one in the morning, the nurse was awakened by what sounded like a sob coming from the bed. She looked up, and there... Seated in the same place as the previous evening was the child with the wide-brimmed hat. The nurse sprang out of her chair, but again the child raised her hand. As before, the nurse collapsed, spellbound, paralyzed. Nurse Mackenzie sat in horror listening to the moans coming from the sick woman. Every second she grew worse, and each sound rang in the nurse's ear like the hammering of nails in her coffin. Then the sounds stopped. The child got up from the chair and walked toward the window, and the spell was broken. Nurse Mackenzie, with a cry of indignation, bounded over the carpet and faced the intruder. "'Who are you?' the nurse hissed. "'Tell me your name, and instantly, how dare you enter this room without my permission?' "'It is probably not wise to challenge an apparition under any circumstances. "'It certainly was not wise in this case.' 
the child raised her head and the nurse snatched away the hat. She found herself looking not at the face of a living child, but staring into the face of a corpse. It was the corpse of a child that Nurse McKenzie thought to be Indian. In its lifetime, the child had without doubt been lovely, but was now horrible, horrible with all the ghastly disfigurements of a long consignment to the grave. Worst of all was a gaping cut in the throat. This terrifying sight caused the nurse to faint. When she regained consciousness, she found that the ghost was gone and that her patient was dead. One of the dead woman's arms was thrown across her eyes as if she wanted to shut out something that she was afraid to look at. It was part of the nurse's duties to help pack up the belongings of the dead woman. One of the things she found was a large envelope that had a postmark from a city in India. The nurse was trying to find some clue to where the dead woman's relatives might be contacted. She opened the envelope, and it contained only a large photograph of a pretty young Indian girl. The nurse recognized the dress immediately. It was that of the ghostly visitor. On the back of the photograph was written the words, Natalie, may God forgive us both. No other information about Miss Venning or the unknown Natalie was ever discovered. After a time, the inquiry was abandoned. The ghost of the Indian child was never seen again at the hotel, but the hotel is still haunted to this day. Haunted by the ghost of a woman long deceased. Oh, that was kind of a creepy, chilling tale, wasn't it? Well, I'm not finished yet because I have one more for you. This one dealing with another female entity. Or perhaps it's a curse. At any rate, the name of this one is The High Priestess of Death. Practically everyone has heard of King Tut's curse. It is the curse that is supposedly attached to the tomb of the pharaoh Tutankhamun. Tutankhamun's tomb, the only unplundered tomb of an ancient Egyptian king ever found, was discovered in 1922. A short time after the discovery, Lord Carnarvon, who had financed the expedition, died in Cairo under mysterious circumstances. 
Over the years, the story of the curse has grown as others connected with the discovery also met strange or unexplained deaths. But there is another story, an earlier story of an ancient Egyptian curse that may have been far more effective. In the late 19th century, there were a large number of archaeological discoveries in Egypt. Often the finds were made by people who were little better than tomb robbers. The artifacts, including mummy cases and the mummies themselves, regularly wound up in the markets of Cairo or other Egyptian cities. There they were offered for sale to wealthy collectors and among uh, the most eager collectors of these curiosities, as the artifacts were often called at the time, were Englishmen. One such collector was a man named Douglas Murray. In a shop in the back streets of Cairo, he was shown a mummy case. It was supposed to have belonged to a high priestess in the temple of Amon-Ra, chief god of the ancient Egyptians. The priestess was said to have lived in the city of Thebes in about 1600 B.C. As with most mummy cases, this one bore a likeness of the person whose mummy was inside. The likeness on this case was particularly well-preserved. Usually these mummy case drawings and thousands of them have been found, are stiff and formal. They have no individuality. And it is hard to tell one from the other. But there was something unsettling about this particular likeness. One person who viewed it declared that the expression on the face was that of a soul in living torment. In any case, it was certainly different. When Murray first saw the object, he was quite repelled by it, but it was an unusually fine example of ancient Egyptian art, and quite a bargain to boot. So he bought it and had it packed up for shipment to London, along with other curiosities he had purchased during his Egyptian travels. Then the misfortunes began. A few days after he bought the mummy case, Murray went on a shooting expedition up the Nile. The gun that he was carrying exploded in his hand for no known reason. His hand and arm were seriously injured, and he was in agony. The boat was quickly turned around to return to Cairo so Murray could get urgent medical attention. But the boat encountered strong headwinds, very unusual at that time of year, and the return journey took ten days. By the time Murray reached Cairo, gangrene had set in. He lay in the hospital for weeks, feverish and near death. He did recover, but the infected arm had to be amputated above the elbow. Some of Murray's companions suffered even worse fates. 
two of them died on the return voyage to England and were buried at sea. Two servants who had handled the mummy case died within a year. When the ship carrying Murray and the curiosities finally docked in London, it was found that the valuable objects all had been stolen. Perhaps they had never even left Cairo. Murray had been too ill to keep careful track of his possessions. But no, not everything had been stolen. The high priestess's mummy case was still there. For some reason, the thieves had rejected it. Murray gazed at the portrait and felt that the eyes seemed to come to life and glare at him with a malevolence that turned his blood cold. He sensed that all the terrible things that had happened to him were somehow connected to that mummy case. Murray decided to give the case away to a lady he knew. As soon as she received the strange gift, the lady suffered a string of disasters. Her mother sustained what should have been a trivial leg injury, but the leg failed to heal as it should, and the poor woman died after months of prolonged suffering. The lady's fiancé decided abruptly, and for no particular reason, that he no longer wanted to marry her. Her pets died, and then the lady herself became ill. The doctors were at, her, were at a loss to diagnose the nature of her illness, but she became so weak that she was afraid she too would die. She called her lawyer to make out her will. The lawyer made out the will, but on hearing the whole story, he also suggested that the mummy case be returned to Douglas Murray. As soon as she did that, her health recovered. However, Murray's health was broken, and he certainly did not want the mummy case back. So he donated it to the British Museum. Surely this large and impersonal institution could not be affected by a long-dead Egyptian priestess. Or could it? A photographer who took a series of photographs of the mummy case for the museum died mysteriously a few weeks later. An Egyptologist who was in charge of the object while the museum decided whether or not to accept it died suddenly and unexpectedly. But finally, the museum did accept the mummy case. It was put on display in 1889 as exhibit number 22542 in the second Egyptian room of the British Museum. The reputation of the high priestess's mummy case was by that time well known. Stories about its evil influence had appeared in the press. Visitors to the museum laid bunches of flowers on the floor in front of the exhibit to appease the spirit of the long-dead Theban priestess.
people would gather around the exhibit to gate and whisper. It became a magnet for occultists and all who believed in the supernatural. Finally, the museum just got tired of answering an endless stream of questions about the mummy case. It was removed from public view and stored in the basement with countless other objects in the museum's vast collection. The sudden disappearance of this notorious exhibit prompted what was surely the most dramatic story of all. It was said that the museum had secretly sold the mummy case to an American collector and that it had been shipped to America in the cargo hold of the Titanic. In 1912, the Titanic, the largest and most luxurious ocean liner ever built, a ship that was supposed to be unsinkable, struck an iceberg in the North Atlantic on her maiden voyage from England to America and sank with a terrible loss of life. No one knows exactly where or how this particular rumor began. Spokesmen for the British Museum insist that the mummy case had never been sold to an American and that it was not aboard the Titanic. But they did not put it back on display either. And the rumors have never really died out. So, the High Priestess's mummy case remains either in the basement of the British Museum or at the bottom of the North Atlantic. And that, too, was a very chilling story. I want to apologize for these two stories if I butchered the names of some of the cities. I tried to correct them as I went, but I appreciate you listening, and I enjoy telling and sharing these stories. So keep on sharing them so that they, too, will never die, much like the ghosts which they are about. (laughs) And now, it is time to bid you adieu. But I will return for more scary, creepy, spooky horror stories, so stay tuned. Until then, make sure all your doors and windows are locked before you turn in tonight. Watch out for those strange noises coming from across the house. But by all means, have a happy haunting. (laughs) 